that something's not right about your community and it should be better, say something about it or do something about it. Do it, don't dream it. Take action on it. Even if it doesn't work, you'll be able to sleep at night knowing at least I tried. Right? Don't be passive and inactive. Do it. That's John McDonald. He's the CEO of a Fishers, Indiana-based Internet of Things company called Clear Object. We'll talk more with John on Episode 9 of the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast. I'm Andy Dix. It's early spring in Indiana. College basketball still has the attention of most people, and the farmers are busy preparing their equipment to begin spring planting. In just a few short weeks, countless acres of corn and soybeans will be sending up fresh sprouts. All seems normal as a long winter reluctantly gives way to a welcome spring. While grain is Indiana's traditional cash crop, a new commodity is poised to change the Hoosier landscape forever and create a new normal. This crop is data. Imagine fields of ones and zeros like a clip from the famous movie The Matrix. Almost everything is data rich and ripe for picking. But like corn that's encased in its husk, much everyday equipment, appliances, and devices are storing data and it's trapped inside of it. This valuable data is waiting for someone to invent a digital combine to harvest the data and ship it to market for a profit. Welcome to the Internet of Things, where everything becomes connected via the internet and artificial intelligence uses machine learning to analyze and anticipate the marketplace's needs and opportunities. ClearObject, a Fishers, Indiana-based tech firm, is building digital harvesters to free trap data and allow its clients to profit from it. Hoosier native John McDonald is the CEO of ClearObject. I met with John in his offices to talk about what our new life on the digital prairie might look like in the not-too-distant future. ClearObject is not your typical company that one thinks of as thriving in the Midwest. But thanks to the visionary leadership of John and his team, ClearObject is playing a key role in growing sustainable, well-paying technology jobs that give hope to some of Indiana's best and brightest people. I began my conversation with John by asking him to define what's meant by the term the Internet of Things. I think simplistically, it's about everyday devices becoming smart and sending data about how we're using them, data that can be collected and interpreted and used, hopefully, to offer up other goods and services in the context of our needs at the moment based on what the device is saying. Just everyday things getting smart, and that smarts comes from software primarily. Uh, certainly hardware components that go into it that enable it to run software, but that software is the generator of most of the smarts. And so do you find that some sort of equipment or items that are already deployed in the field, they have data, but they're trapped. It's, yes. it, it can't communicate anywhere. Is that, is that yeah. what we find? What we're finding more often than not is that the, we'll say the hardware engineers have been ahead of the, of the, of the data people uh, for some time. The devices that are in use today, generally many of them have the ability to send information, information that's generally not collected and certainly not interpreted and understood, except in very narrow ways. Find that all over the place, uh, in hospitals, in factories, in logistics operations, in restaurant operations. The equipment is smarter than the people that are using it right now. Um, and so the, there's a gap there that we're trying to fill. So give me a real world example of an item that was in use, had data, and thanks to your company and insights, you were able to put that data to, yeah. to value. 
Yeah, a company called SCP Products. Uh, they're in Auburn, Indiana. They make igniters that go in gas stoves, you know, like click, click, click. Doing it that way for maybe 26 years, same thing. Got a call from the CEO of the company, and he said, we're bidding on a contract to supply these igniters to a big global appliance manufacturer. But there's an issue. They would like us to put a sensor in the igniter that will talk to the circuit board that it plugs into that will predict when the igniter is going to fail. Because the appliance company wants to send you a box with a new igniter in it because your stove called and said it needs a new igniter. And he said, you know, can you help us with that? And I said kind of flatly, I hope so. <laughs> right, 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 right. And not, and not just because that's what we do, but also being reflective, what if I can't? And some company, igniter company in Ohio or California or, or China figures that out. Well, the reality and the implication is, is that that guy isn't going to be making igniters for 27 years. And so that means this little igniter company in Auburn, Indiana is now an IoT company. And the reality is they all are. Uh, every single company has to figure out how to build a digital product that today differentiates their physical product in the marketplace and in due course and time may actually become the product. And sort of like a, you know, a room full of fluorescent lights, when you flick on the switch, they sort of blink, 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 you know, before they all come on, right? That's what's happening all across Indiana, all across the Midwest, all across the world. Everyday companies are waking up to that reality that they have to have these digital products to differentiate their own offerings to survive. Some industries you see that happening much more rapidly. Automotive is often pointed out as being that uh, the, the cutting edge of that with autonomous vehicles. But the reason that every automotive manufacturer, large or small, is hard at work delivering autonomous vehicle capability, which is why we will have it right, as consumers, is the same problem that they face, that the igniter guy faces, which is what if we didn't? And our competitors offer that and we don't have that. We won't be making cars for many years after that point. And so the crushing economics of that reality forces all of them to be able to do that. For instance, a few months ago, we heard about GM's intention to close a factory in Ohio, and our president got all bent and said, you know, maybe we should make them close a factory in China. But if you read what the CEO of GM said about that experience, she said that we need to be investing more resources in people that do analytics, and data collection and autonomous vehicles. So what is she saying? She's saying two things. First of all, we're behind, right? She's looking at it and saying, I see what my competitors are doing and I've analyzed what we've got going on at GM and I'm not happy. We need to put more resources on that to try and catch up. But she's also realizing that there's gonna be a gap between when they have the vehicles that they need on the market and their competitors are, so they're gonna need less production capacity for a period of time. So it's right there in black and white in the press release. I'm not making that up. She said it. So that's General Motors knuckling under the pressure of the economic realities of the Internet of Things. And if that's happening at that level, no one's immune from that. You might be wondering how big of a deal is this Internet of Things? TechRepublic.com published their Internet of Things cheat sheet, which contains a terrific overview. Here's some highlights from their cheat sheet. 
Gartner Research estimates that about 8.4 billion Internet of Things devices were used in 2017, and it's going to balloon to 20.4 billion by 2020. To give a sense of IoT's size, there's approximately 7.6 billion people currently living on Earth. We're already outnumbered by IoT devices. Total spending on the Internet of Things was estimated to be 2 trillion, that's trillion with a T, in 2017. Some common IoT devices include smart thermostats that learn and remember your preferred home temperature, smart light bulbs that alert you to the outdoor air quality, door locks that you can lock and unlock using your cell phone, and of course, fully connected autonomous self-driving vehicles, and various robotic and automated assembly lines in manufacturing. At the Consumer Electronics Show, IoT diapers were demonstrated that alert you when your baby needs to be changed. John McDonald likened IoT to a fourth organizational revolution that's sweeping across the world. Here's John with more. It's nothing less than the fourth major organization structure of our global economy, which is a crazy statement. And I make that often when I talk, but then I quickly say, let me defend that. The first major organization structure was agrarian, organized farming. You farm, so I don't have to farm. Uh, great wealth created. Uh, but prior to that, everybody had to farm in order to eat. But then we had farmers, and you could buy products in markets, then I could do other things, first organization structure. Second one was the Industrial Revolution, or making things. Prior to that, everybody had to make everything, the table they sat at, the bowl they ate out of, the house they lived in. But after that, you could go to these places called stores and buy products that were made in factories, second great creator and destroyer wealth. Third one was in moving things, uh, transportation logistics. That happened after World War II. It's when we got interstate highways, container ships, jet air transport. Uh, and as I observe sometime when I talk in public, when I ordered my phone, I got a shipping notice from it from the factory in China and was able to follow it, planes, trains, and automobiles across the planet to my front door, something that would have been completely impossible just 10 years ago. But now there's another one happening, and it's about smart products. And you don't get any points for being good in those previous industries. In other words, you might or you might not, right? It creates openings for disruption, for companies to go in and, and do it a different way. And it's now the new great creator and destroyer of business value, which is data. And so every company that's in making, moving, and growing has to now wrestle with the reality that the new playing field is a data playing field and that they have to be not just there, but they have to be differentiated in some way in order to survive in that economy. If we stay with our farming analogy from earlier, once we've harvested the data from where it was trapped inside of equipment and different devices, what are we going to do with it? You know, we know how to store data, that's for sure. But this data, just like an agricultural crop, is only fresh for a short period of time. And so we have to get it to market and be able to interpret it and make sense out of it and use it rapidly because if the data gets stale, it becomes much less valuable. I asked John, what are we doing to interpret this mountain of fresh data? You have to have something to staple all that data to, as I like to say. The surface area of data collection is growing so rapidly as each new smart device is deployed and uh, that if there ever was a time where you could collect all that data and understand it, it we've eclipsed it. What we're stapling that to is another very interesting technology called machine learning. And that's distinctly different than artificial intelligence because 
it isn't really intelligence, but there's nothing artificial about it, right? What it is, is it's teaching machines to learn like humans learn. The way humans learn everything is by observing other humans doing something, trying, failing, being corrected, and trying again until you get it right. When cavemen were first trying to figure out fire, they didn't go check out a book from the library or take a three-credit-hour course. What they did was they watched the first caveman make fire, tried to do it, were corrected by the first caveman that got it right, did it again until they got it right, and now we have fire, which is how everyone always learns everything. This accounts for podcasting and YouTube and its popularity. What are you doing? You're watching other humans and listening to other humans. They do something, then you try to emulate. That's curiously not how we've been using computers. What we've been using computers to do is just store all the data and process data according to rules that we as humans set. And we say we do data analytics, but there's no really analytics going on. Really, it's just presenting the data in interesting ways for humans to figure out what it means. So what machine learning is about is teaching machines to learn the way humans learn. Instead of building the analytics model, you feed the data sets to a machine learning uh, API and you ask it to understand what it means. Of course, it doesn't, can't figure it out, right? It's wrong. So then you correct the model, send more data in, correct the model, send more data in, correct the model, and at some point you can send all the data through and it's built a model of interpretation understanding without just human correction as opposed to humans doing it. That is really, really important, right? Right in the history of humanity, right? right. And what I just described really couldn't be done outside of research laboratories until really recently, as in maybe the last year or two, where you could go to a place like Google or whatever, or IBM, and get a machine learning API that you could send your own data to, basically with a credit card over the internet. That's new and is really, really, really important as the sort of foil to the incredible amount of data that's being created in everyday devices to be able to interpret and understand what it means. It's because it can chew through so much more data than, than humans can do. It can point out things that we don't see. If all this talk about technology has got you thinking about the Terminator movie series where machines take over our world, yeah, that's not too surprising. According to John, humans may naturally distrust technology. Here's John with more. Well, one of the reasons why people fear technology, I'll illustrate with an example. Let's say that you are ordering a product off of like Amazon and you get to that last screen where you type in your credit card number. Now, you know it's safe, you feel like it's safe, but you still get that feeling in the pit of your stomach as you type it in, right? But then you feel like maybe the feeling in your stomach is that you're hungry. So you get up and you go to a restaurant, and at the end of the meal, you hand the waiter your credit card and he walks away with all the little numbers on the back and you don't think anything of it, right? So what's the difference between these two situations? And the answer is humans cannot trust computers, at least not yet. Humans can only trust other humans. So in that moment with your waiter, even though it's short and it's fleeting, you're actually creating an interpersonal human bond between you and the waiter. So if you get an errant charge on your credit card, your mind first goes, it was the waiter. Now the question to ponder is, which of those scenarios is more secure? Well, Amazon by far, but your brain perceives it as exactly the opposite. And it's because humans can't trust computers. So when you allow the computer to build a model though, in and of itself, it can be a scary thing. But if you knew that the model was actually trained by humans, suddenly you have this edge case where you're bridging 
because essentially the, 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 the machine's intelligence is essentially a distillation reflection of human intelligence. The, the computer could not figure it out on its own. It still needed the right. human. Does that make the data then more trustworthy? I think it kind of does. And it certainly allows you to get an assist now as a human in looking at data sets and looking for things where you've packed your intelligence into the machine and they're using it as an extension of yourself to look through things at a much more rapid rate. I think that's how we're gonna crack things like cancer and other stuff because I'm sure the answers to them are out there. It's just that our brains haven't been able to sift through all the data points, I think, at the speed that a computer can. And if we can transfer that, then we have an opportunity maybe to crack some codes that we haven't been able to crack yet. So what will our future be like here in the heartland after the computers have gotten their PhD in human behavior? John McDonald shares his vision for our future when we return to The Hopeful Hoosier, Episode 9. Walk the Talk Speaker Series presents stories told by passionate speakers on topics that are timely yet timeless. For more information, visit walkthetalkseries.com. Our mission is to create an epic shift in how people think. Andy Dix in my official role as president of AD Growth Advisors. I always feel like I should put on a tie when I start these commercials. Uh, we are a success acceleration advisory firm based in Indianapolis. A friend of mine recently asked me, so Burrow, what exactly does a success acceleration advisor do? You know, that's a really hard question to answer with words, but it's super easy to understand through actual experience. So I told him, hey, let me give you a free sample of a powerful coaching experience. Then he got it. We all get stuck by our own self-imposed limitations from time to time. Our beliefs can hold us back more effectively than an electrified barbed wire fence. We sometimes need an experienced professional to help us slow down long enough to hear how we are thinking and to tell us the truth. What are our core values and desires that are driving us? What unsatisfied needs are causing us to feel so frustrated? And why are we here? And what in the world are we supposed to be doing? I have a quote posted on my desk from Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we know we could be. That's my job. I help people like you create a definition of personal and professional success that you can be excited, inspired, and tenacious enough to truly live into reality. As your success acceleration advisor, we'll create an individualized growth plan that will help you achieve the success that you want in the least amount of time. If you want to experience firsthand a meaningful conversation focused on accelerating your success, then email me at andy at abgrowthadvisors.com. Our first conversation is always free, and it may be all you need to identify your next step forward. If so, great, because then you'll be able to refer your friends, colleagues, and family members who are currently riding on the struggle bus and frustration to me so I can help them exchange their ticket for a first-class seat on the success jet. Now you know a hopeful Hoosier who can help. Visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, Episode 9, as we continue our conversation with the CEO of Fishers, Indiana-based Internet of Things company, Clear Object, John McDonald. John and his company live at the bleeding edge of our future. Their job is to take what's possible now, but really shape it into whatever's going to be in the not-so-distant future for us here in Indiana. In order to do that, you've got to have a clear vision of not only what's possible, but what is likely. 
and I asked John to share his vision for the future for us, and it's coming faster than most of us even imagine. We'll start with that autonomous vehicle idea for a minute. Ford, GM, Chrysler, all the major manufacturers have all vowed to have a level four autonomous vehicle in the marketplace by the 2021 model year, which is anywhere between 18 months and two years away, depending on who you talk to. Level four, by the way, is a car that can be pre-programmed to drive from one location to another without driver input and fail safely. Fail safely meaning that if there's a roadblock, it'll pull over and stop and wait for driver input. Already commercially available on all the Tesla vehicles and already on some very high-end luxury vehicles, but to have all the manufacturers say that they'll have that in you know two years tells you we will have that, right, as consumers. That means that in two years, three years, you're going to be able to drive your car to the local Ford dealership and have your new Ford drive you home. So what changes in that world? Well, first and foremost, I think you need a lot less roads. One of the reasons we have so many roads is we have to keep a safe distance between ourselves and vehicles in front of us. But in that model, when they're all being controlled by computers, you don't have to keep any distance at all, which any IndyCar driver will tell you is a great way to save on fuel. You also don't have to drive them at 55 miles an hour, you can drive them at 200 miles an hour. So you can, it widens your reach, if you will, of where you could go to have a meal or go to a store or whatever. So local is redefined, <laughs> right, right, in that scenario, right? It also means that any investment in public transportation is probably not a great idea right now because it turns every road into a train line and every car into a private train vehicle, right? And that's not to say we should be not taking a look at places where we need to address those problems right now, but it's the main reason for you asked about Fishers, why you know the city is is intent on pulling out the rail line that ran through the middle of our town, turning it into a trail, because they realize that getting people out of their homes and socializing on a trail is a lot more forward-looking than investing money in a steam locomotive. It's for this very reason, among others. But I think the biggest implication of that is in stores. If you have autonomous delivery vehicles that with a click of your app can bring you nearly any product from a local distribution center, you know, in 15 or 20 minutes. To be honest, you don't need stores. And that's already happening. As you look around and see retail operation after retail operation after retail operation, shutting stores, shutting down, going bankrupt, scaling back plans, that's what's happening. It's not just Amazon. Getting a product that you need delivered to your home on demand is an infinitely superior way to get products. And what that does is the only stores that survive that are entertainment. This is why Ikea works or why Kroger Marketplace works because, hey, there's a taco stand and a da-da-da. It's an experience. So experiential shopping survives, but utilitarian shopping, dead, already right. dead. It's just an infinitely superior way to, f to figure out what d distribution center has the product that I need and dispatch an automatic vehicle to get it for me. John, what does it also mean, though, for folks who are handicapped or the elderly? I think this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. This is a little bit of a mind stretcher, but hang with me on this. It's kind of silly that we tax ourselves to build and maintain roads, but then we make everybody go buy cars to run on. If you look at any parking lot, including the one outside this building, it's filled with tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of capital assets sitting there cooling off. It's a massive misappropriation of capital assets, to be honest with you. We do not need that many cars. 
We just don't. It would be so much better if we taxed ourselves for the vehicles in addition to the roads. So that when it came time for me to go home that I could get on my watch and call a car from the city livery because I'm a Fishers resident and I pay taxes in Fishers. And have that car take me home or take me to a restaurant or whatever and then go back to the livery to charge. Infinitely superior way to do that. If you had that world, you could extend privileges of transportation to everyone on equal basis. So people that didn't have the means or couldn't be taxed, if you will, could still get access to that as a public good. Out the door goes all food deserts. What's one of the biggest differentiators between haves and have-nots? The ability to access reliable transportation. Suddenly now I can go to my job without having to have that a hassle. Or I can go to a grocery store, have that product delivered to me. Infinitely superior social good aspects come out of a model where transportation, not just the road part, but also the vehicle part, is public. I asked some Ford engineers about this, and they've already thought about this. You know, they said, well, they see themselves as vehicle integrators. They say, we have factories, we have supplies, we have designers. And so they see, you know, cities like Fishers going to them and saying, well, we need Fishers vehicles. Well, how many? 40. And what features, right? And you'll end up with different vehicle features based on you being in Alaska versus Florida. So they see themselves as essentially systems integrators of vehicle fleets from one to end. I know that's a bit of a mind stretcher, right? But it's important to sort of draw that line between these early hours of a concept like autonomous vehicles and the tremendous social good that can come from taking that line to its logical conclusion. So now let's talk about the consequence of that where you no longer have folks driving Uber, you no longer have folks building garages, uh, garage doors don't need to be the way they are most likely. So there's yeah. there's other Truck consequences drivers, to it, right? right. Yeah, correct. And so the entire purpose of technology from the beginning is to take something that was a human drudgery and make it so simple that anybody can do it. And so again, with autonomous vehicles, do people really like driving? I guess there's, there's certain circumstances where it can be fun, but anybody that's commuted on 465 in the morning will tell you, no, this kind of sucks, right? And there's probably way better things that you'd like to be doing with your time than this. Well, we're about to give you all that time back. It's the biggest one-time leap in human productivity ever. Will some people squander that and go, oh, woe is me, I used to be a truck driver? Yes, of course, there always has been that when disruptive technology happens. But the whole history of humanity has been the preponderance is that people use the time that they've been given to go do something that they couldn't do before because they've been freed up of that drudgery. And more people tend to do that than the people that tend to say, woe is me. I see no reason for that dynamic to be different now. The only thing that's different about it is the speed. And that's where I get worried. It's not that I don't think we can't find something for all these truck drivers to do. I think we can. I think we can find something for the truck drivers that want to find something to do. What I will turn around and look at is do we have the conditions in our state that will enable that transition? And I regret to say that I think decidedly the answer is no. And what are those conditions? Well. I like to equate what's necessary to create a company to the, the fire triangle that we all learned about as kids, you know, heat and fuel and oxygen. Well, the same thing has to exist for an entrepreneurial company. Heat is an idea, and the good news is everybody has them. They're free. There's no shortage of them here, okay? So we're good there, check. Fuel is people. It's what the folks you hire basically to help you build your company and, and the talented labor. And oxygen, as anybody as a business, what's the, what's the oxygen in the business? It's money. It's 
capital. So the necessary elements are capital, talent, and ideas. And even though, just like in the fire triangle, even if you had fuel, oxygen, and heat, you still don't have fire. You have to have something that sparks that reaction. And that spark, in the metaphorical context, is what the entrepreneur does. It's my job to light the spark. It's to take those things and light them on fire. That's what I do. So how are we doing on those things in Indiana? Well, ideas are free. Everybody has them. Okay, so no problem there. No better, no worse. Capital, 39th in America in the amount of venture capital deployed. Even though we have about the 20th largest economy in the state, by the way, Minnesota has the 21st largest economy. They're number 17 on the list of venture capital. So all the states around us that border us, and additionally, Wisconsin and Minnesota had more venture capital deployed than we did in Indiana. So not good is the answer to that. And a lot of the efforts that I've had and others in the tech business, even with the government leadership, have been trying to address that issue. Absolutely necessary for us to have a technology business and have those things in here. But the really dismaying part of this is the talent piece. First of all, our education system was designed a century ago to take kids and educate them enough to be productive members of society one time. It was never designed to be a lifetime learning and relearning mechanism. So you talk about those truck drivers, where are they going to go to school to learn the skills that they need to be able to change their careers up? Maybe more than once. I don't know, because the system is not designed for that. And then if you look at how are we doing just for the people it's designed to help. If you go to monster.com right now and you search software developer, in Indianapolis, you will get over a thousand open software development jobs. This is curious when you know that the starting salary for these jobs is about $60,000 a year, which is about 40% higher than the per capita average income, all levels, all jobs in Indiana. And also, if you know that in our top 10 universities in Indiana, just by student enrollment, we have over 600,000 students enrolled in those universities. Now, they're not gonna be software developers, but with such a high number of enrollees and such high starting salaries, how do we have a thousand open software development jobs? It doesn't make any sense, right? So if you crack the cover on that though, you get under some dismaying statistics. And you have to go look at Commission for Higher Education, which is our agency in Indiana that coordinates higher education policy. You gotta look at the Department of Education data. You gotta look at Department of Workforce Development to understand this. It's not really painted anywhere where you can go as a Hoosier and find it. But there's about 40,000 Indiana high school graduates every spring, give or take a few. Of that group, for every 100 of them, 35 of them will not go to college at all. Of the 65 that do, only 32 of them will graduate with a degree on time. Of those 32, only 16 of them will find a job in the field they studied. And of those 16, four of them will be unemployed after the first year. Which means that the system that we said that will get you a great job in a field you love, if you get good enough grades in one of our high schools and go to one of our colleges, has a 12% success rate. If you get through that on, on time, you're greeted with an average of about $29,000 worth of student debt, which at 7% over 10 years means you're going to pay a 60% premium on that money. That industry has racked up 44.5 million borrowers about 10% of which are in active default. $1.48 trillion of college loans, which is $620 billion more than all credit card debt combined. And that's if you get through it. Because if you don't get through it, what are your options? Because the, we've so trained our parents that if you don't send your kids to college that somehow there you're gonna be a loser. Look at this recent example of these 
rich people bribing people to get their kids into college is such an egregiously perfect example of what I'm talking about. If the local mill closed a few years ago and the local auto body shop ain't hiring, to be fair, you have a pretty bleak outlook on the rest of your life, which is what a lot of us think is the actual source of our opioid problem in Indiana. And then if you get through it and you have that $29,000 of college debt and I make you a job offer for $60,000 here in Fishers, Indiana, well, guess what? The starting salary for a software developer for Google and Mountain View is $123,000 a year. Now, granted, you're going to be sleeping on a cot and eating ramen noodles, but at least if you're staring down that amount of debt, you know you got enough money coming in to cover it. Which job are you going to take? Which is the actual source of our brain drain in Indiana. It's not that the kids don't want to stay, it's that they can't. We're loading them up with debt and they need to go follow the higher paying jobs and our low salaries in Indiana, which are so great for businesses, are terrible for these kids, which is why they leave. That's why we have over a thousand open software development jobs. And it's because our education system is failing to educate more than 12% of our kids. And those 12% are leaving our state with those degrees to work for other companies. And it's true about that igniter guy that every one of those companies in an IoT company, we're screwed. We're just flat screwed. And that is before you even layer in the need to retrain all those truck drivers to become productive citizens after you don't need truck drivers anymore. This is the problem. The education and higher education system that we have in this state is completely and utterly wrong for what we now need to have it be used for. And, and I don't know how to say that any more clearly than that. The Internet of Everything is certain to disrupt much of life as we know it in Indiana. Some of the changes are going to be welcomed by many of us. Some of them will be unfortunately devastating to what we now know as normal life. Right now, there's not enough long-term angel investment in promising Hoosier startups and in companies wanting to transform to the digital age. We lack affordable and readily available access to training so displaced workers can pivot their careers quickly to meet employers' rapidly changing needs. There's too much educational debt to allow our best and brightest young people to enjoy our heartland lifestyle, and it forces them to move to the coast and creates disconnected families and a brain drain for Indiana's aspiring companies. Yes, we have our fair share of challenges to overcome to reap the full harvest of our digital future, but there's reason to be hopeful. I asked John McDonald to share his solutions to these problems. The short-term answer a lot of people, both in and outside the education system, believe is a competency-based education approach, not degree-based. In other words, I need to go to school to learn some useful skill that I want to apply as rapidly as I possibly can. If you look at Steve Jobs from Apple, Bill Gates from Microsoft, Larry Ellison at Oracle, Sir Richard Branson at Virgin, both the founders of Facebook, both the founders of Twitter, other than being technology entrepreneurs that we all admire, they all have one other thing in common, which is none of them have a college degree. It never was and still isn't required to get a college degree to be a technologist. It isn't. What's required is competency, right, in certain technologies to be able to do it. It's always been the case. And so that's why you see things like 1150 Academy, it's just what Scott Jones is doing. That is a trade school for coders. They are delivering competency-based education and certificates completely outside the normal education system that are enabling kids straight out of high school and straight out of other career pathways to go become software developers. So changing our higher education system to at least in some part be focused on competencies is absolutely critical. But even when you have that competency, 
you also need a place to practice your skill. And that's why you also have to have a robust system of apprenticeships. You have to have openings for these people where they can go be mentored and complete their education on the job. If you go to a trade school to become an electrician, you go out on the job and they, they don't hand you a soldering iron, hell no. They're not gonna let you touch anything for months, maybe, so you don't kill yourself and, and everybody else on this job site. Maybe in six months I'll let you wire a switch. So they already understand the importance of this apprenticeship model. Well, learning trades and learning certificates from those trades and not learning degrees and then having apprenticeships to be able to apply them is the only path out of this. And then on the longer term, it's just more of the same because I'm gonna change my career on average as a kid coming out of high school today six times, I think I read recently. Who's gonna educate me for those career changes those six times? Learning needs to be thought of as a lifelong journey where instead of being something that I go put myself in hock and get a huge loan to get a degree, we need to see it as a subscription, right? I need to subscribe to Purdue University and be able to go back there over the course of my lifetime and get trained and adjust my training as my career needs and directions change. It needs to be a subscription, not a purchase and finance model. That reform of education from being finance and purchase to subscription-based is the longer-term play because it's just so radically different than the way those things are set up now. But the short-term play is to carve out space for certificate-based, competency-based learning and apprenticeships that can apply it. What advice do you have or encouragement for the parent, maybe that's listening right now, of middle schooler or high schoolers? What would you tell the, them? The idea that if your kid doesn't go to school in a college and, and doesn't get a degree, that you or that kid, your kid is a loser is not just a bending of the truth, it's a lie. And that lie, if you ask who's perpetuating that lie, well, how about the college loan industry? For starters, right? You know, De Beers says diamonds are forever. Why? They mine diamonds, <laughs> right? Uh, you can make better diamonds for fractions of what it is that they're turning out in the lab. But they've created this sense of scarcity and importance of this in our minds because they mine diamonds. So don't buy into that lie. There's probably other villains as well, but you may choose different ones. But the important thing to understand is, is that your kid is not a loser and you are not a bad parent if you decide that it might be in Johnny's best interest to go to a trade school to learn how to be an electrician or a coder or a carpenter or something that builds something in our world that's physical and in our hands, be it a digital product or otherwise. We've so devalued those trades in our society that we lost our ability to just make stuff and grow stuff. When the exact moment when we need that, we don't have it. What I'm hearing is it's important to encourage younger people to be thinking about what capabilities can they bring to a marketplace that people will find valuable. And here's the cool thing about it, they already are. In their hyper-connected world, they already see that the skills that they're learning in high school and that are not applicable to the digital world they live in. They, they can code a website, they can build an app. They're not learning any of that stuff in school. They're learning two full years of earth science and biology in Indiana in order to get a core 40 diploma. They're learning two full years of advanced math. 
What percentage of jobs require advanced math? The answer is 22%. 22% of all jobs require anything more than addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and yet all of our kids are learning two full years of it. Why are we teaching two full years of earth science and, and biology? I can tell you because a century ago when we set up the system, most of the kids that were going through our elementary schools were going to become farmers or factory workers. And so if you're going to be a farmer, knowing biology and earth science is pretty important. Right? If you're going to be a factory worker, knowing geometry and fractions is pretty important. That's why it is the way it is. And now we're still using these measurements to determine whether or not you have the right stuff to be able to get into one of our colleges. That doesn't necessarily indicate anything. If I'm able to know about all these fractions and geometry and earth science and be able to pass tests on the, uh, quiz questions on the SAT, does that mean I am going to be a business leader? Does that mean I'm going to know anything? There's no correlation, <laughs> right? And so I would just encourage you to be smart consumers of the education system and use it and look for ways that you can leverage the system to your own personal need to learn what it is that you believe is going to be necessary in this digital economy. So as this digital economy becomes more and more real every single day, how can we focus on human work enrichment and not just replacement by technology. So that gets back to this computer assist idea versus computer do. People have this sort of idea that it's one or the other, like a, the computer machine's going to replace me. And to be fair, that's true. That does happen, right? And I'm not trying to brush that off as not, not knowledge that. But the more interesting thing is to leverage computers and machinery to assist humans in doing their jobs better. It's not a zero-sum game. If you figure out ways for the computer to assist you to produce a, a product faster in a factory or to understand how products being used in a consumer's hands, what it does is it opens your eyes as humans to other opportunities and possibilities for new markets that you could sell your product to, for new uses of that technology, for, for uses of the data itself. We have to get out of this A-B mentality and realize that it's A plus B. It's humans plus technology that have always conquered the human challenges. Humans alone can't do it. Machines alone can't do it. Only humans with machines. And so it's a mentality shift in how you look at the problem. How do we ensure that people, especially here in Indiana, don't get left behind as the technology on the coast tends to grow a little bit quicker and adoption grows a little bit quicker than what it does here? Yeah, I have two thoughts on that. First of all, you need to demand of your leaders, be they political leaders or business leaders or even just civic leaders, a higher standard of service to you as a Hoosier than you're getting in the face of this digital economy. The statistics that I pointed out to you are appalling, okay? And they, they should be infuriating to taxpayers in Indiana that are paying for this system to have that kind of outcome. Imagine if you went to Best Buy and bought a television and you brought it home, you plugged it in and it didn't work. So you took it back and you got another one and you plugged it in and it didn't work and you did that four times before you found a working one. Would you get to the fifth time to go get it? No, but that's exactly our success rate in this, right? That should be appalling. So the first thing is you have to demand better from the people that are leading this effort, that have put themselves up and said, I'll lead you. Well, are they? But the second thing, and this is always the case, we have to take that matter into our own hands too. You have to take responsibility for yourself and for your own family to say, given that this situation is bleak, there are ways through it and I can't just be passively accepting 
that what I'm being told is the best way for me or for my kid. I have to be responsible parents and responsible humans in the state to be able to chart a course through this and be able to do it. So I think that's our ace in the hole, right? I think we, we are much more inclined here in Indiana to be self-starters and to be um, work autonomously on these problems. And so if we empower ourselves to, to not only demand better, but to do better, we, we have, a, have a fighting chance of fixing it. If someone's intrigued by, first of all, the concept of the Internet of Things, what's a good resource that they could go to to, to learn more? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there are a few good books that have been written about this, but I would encourage you, if you are interested in learning more, is to reach out to companies or organizations in your local community that are attempting to do something with this concept. For instance, here in Fishers, we have the first, I think, ever civically funded Internet of Things lab. And there are IoT labs, but I've never seen one that's funded by a city. That's remarkable go. <laughs> right, right, pop your head in. Your local Ivy Tech or Vincennes campus, they have an Internet of Things class, go. You know, if there's a local speaker talking about it, go. If there's a local company that's doing stuff in this space, give them a call. Reach out. It's all over the place. And I'd encourage you to work local rather than turning to somebody in on the internet or on a coast or another country for answers they're all around you there are companies that are broadband companies trying to drive this on local local levels they're, they're everywhere just search the presentation i give in public is titled the internet of everything i think that's ultimately more accurate uh, the history of the internet has been a, a history of an internet of people uh, the idea is to connect people to the internet. We say when we carry these cell phones around that we're carrying all of human knowledge, but in reality, there's very little on this actually on this phone. If this phone lost connection to the network, it couldn't even keep time well. So really what it is is an endpoint to the internet. Uh, my body has five senses, but this cell phone has 12, right? And they're all designed to augment me and make me a smart endpoint to the internet. But now the edge is everyday devices. And that's now changing the internet from being a connector to humans to the internet than a connector of things, and really, ultimately, everything. Right? And that's how it's evolving. Now that John's given us a sense of what the future looks like for us here in a digital Indiana, I asked him to give me an overview of his company, Clear Object, and where it fits in. We're an agency that helps companies build and run their digital products. Um, that's what we do. So when we find a company that wants to do this, uh, we have a team first that engages with them to help them design it. Then we have a team that helps them build it. And then we have a team that runs it. Because all of these digital products are built on cloud services and they're really layered products, right, that have things in the cloud and things that are on-prem for them, devices and whatever, on-premise is what we call it. And and so that requires operators that know how to run those things after they're built. That's what we do. So we're not alone in that. There are other companies that do that, but the market is so vast. If it's true that everybody has to do this, sky's the limit on where it can go. How many employees do you currently have? We have 47. This is really an interesting case study for us here in the state because this isn't the type of company Unfortunately, one would think of as being a homegrown Indianapolis company. Right. Yeah, we don't machine screws. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right
First of all, why did you choose to do that here in Fishers and not be in a major metropolitan area? Well, because those companies that make, move, and grow things are the ones that are being most changed by this digital economy. And we're right in the middle of them. Indiana is number one in America uh, for the uh, GDP and the percentage of our population that's in manufacturing, which is why our president always shows up here whenever there's something to do about manufacturing. We're number one in America in the amount of goods and services that move over our transportation network here in Indiana. And we're number, I think, six or seven in total agricultural output in America which is, doesn't sound as impressive as number one, except you think about the states that we're up against, like Nebraska and Kansas, which are many times our size, and we're holding our own, right? So we're literally exactly in the middle of making, moving, and growing. And so this is an ideal place to be doing a business that is about the Internet of Things. But then in, in addition to that, you know, the things that people read about our having a good business climate are real. If you go back to that metaphor of the fire. More modern versions of the fire triangle have a fifth element to them. Besides fuel, heat, and, and oxygen, and the spark, there's another element to it, which is the tendency of a fire, once it's running, to stay running. You, you don't have to keep sparking it, basically. It tends to continue to burn. I attribute you know, Indiana's business economy, metaphorically, as to be ideal conditions to help that continue to burn. I think a combination of proximity to our target customer and the assist that we get from the policies and the taxation and the access to government helps those fires stay burning. So why should the average person who's driving down Main Street and Fishers care that there's a clear object here? <laughs> well, I think it's better that we're here and not in Chicago or China because I think it means that we have an opportunity to help our local companies do this and do this well and excel on the global stage, which ultimately has an amplification effect in regards to employment and to wealth building, not just for our company, but for all the companies we help as well. If they were getting this done by somebody that was not in Indiana, that benefit would be accruing somewhere else. Same is true of capital as well. It's why we have to have more high net worth individuals not put their money just in mutual funds or gamble it on Las Vegas. We need them to build angel networks and, and funds that will reinvest that in startups here in Indiana. And because when those startups succeed, the benefit flows back to you know those high net worth individuals who can then reinvest it again and again. And that, that virtuous cycle is why Silicon Valley, will no one will ever catch that because that's been going on for several generations now. We're just getting started. But the name of the game is the reinvestment. And also, there's a big element of being able to provide sustainable, good-paying jobs yeah, that, that are relevant, that are relevant, yeah. that people can put roots down in the community and become vested in the community. This is really their home. When I couldn't, could not possibly agree more. That's what contributes to the sense of place, and the efforts to do that already are paying off. It's you read things about you know Indy being a tech hub and an emerging tech city and that sort of stuff. Well, where does that come from? It's coming from the companies that are choosing to build their fortunes here. How did you decide to pursue this particular career path you're on? It's a great question. It was an accident. I worked for IBM, and I got a phone call from a colleague who was working with McDonald's in Oak Brook, Illinois. McDonald's wanted to move their software development environment, you know, software that's used to make other software, into a cloud. 
and I didn't know what a cloud was. So I looked it up, and it's remarkable what's happened to our industry in that short period of time. But once I found out what it was, I quickly realized there were two problems with it. The first one, it was it was illegal. Uh, IBM <laughs> IBM's license agreement didn't permit you to do that. So I worked with some others to get that problem solved. And this group of people didn't even really have a name yet, got the first ever software as a service agreement IBM ever did. And then they set to work getting some angel investment to solve the second problem, which is how do you manage software like this in a cloud? You know, it's not designed for that. And they designed some technology and worked through some problems and got those resolved. And so I quit IBM on April Fool's Day, 2010, to be the first CEO of what was then called Cloud One, and so I, I realized, you know, that's a, you got the contract and you got the technology. That's a company. So <laughs> let's go see what we can do. Yeah. What about this role brings out the best in you? Uh, I just love, 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 love getting in front of audiences of people of one or many, and helping them see, much like this conversation today not only what's going to happen, but why they shouldn't be afraid of it. I would say that a lot of the employees we even have at this company are here because they want to be a part of that transformation, right? That's the thing that really excites them. Now, the reality of it often is kind of gritty <laughs> and oftentimes isn't that fun. It means working through problems, dealing with people you may not like, or you know, staying up all night to fix a customer issue, all the same problems that a company has, right? There's no, there's no nirvana here or anything different than that. But I think we've got a benefit that every day we have a new and different thing walking through our door that there's never any question about how you're moving the needle. So what matters most to you about what you're doing here at ClearObject? What matters most to me about the work that I'm doing within these four walls is developing people helping them expand their skills, get new experiences, grow their careers, even if that means growing out of Clear Object into something else, that gives me the most satisfaction when we've invested time and energy in a person and they've flowered because of it. I love that. Outside our four walls, it's, it's helping those companies thrive and survive in the digital economy. Uh, every time we can successfully do that and a customer gets value out of that and can can differentiate their product, then that gives me the most satisfaction. So what does your ideal vision for the future look like? Well, in many ways, this is a transitional play for us. That sounds weird, but again, let me defend it. Companies today are creating projects and funding them to get at their own data, and that's compelling enough for them to, to pay for it and pay to run it. But in many ways, that data is even more valuable if they would let it escape from the four walls of their company. It's enough now to just get at their own, but it's more valuable if you can take it and do something with it. And so our theory is that when we evolve to a world where there's a marketplace of data, where people are, are letting their data go and can keep a tether hook on it and monetize it, that we'll be in a really good position to help them do that because we help them get at the data to begin with. So for us, it's about building as many pipes to connect customers to their own data so we can be in a good position to help them monetize it in the future. I'll give you uh, two quick examples on that. First example is a lot of us were pissed off at Facebook a few months ago when they sold your data to Cambridge Analytica, right? Well, you kind of knew they were selling your data, right? Why were you pissed off? The answer is you weren't getting a cut. 
right? So if you got a check in the mail every month from Facebook, you'd probably be going back through old photograph boxes and posting as much as you can, right? You're loaded up, right? So the problem, see, is that they're stealing the data from you and not paying you for it, which is why IoT in the consumer space isn't working very well right now because we're just taking the data. So see, the data has great value is kind of the point of saying that, particularly when you let it escape your hands, right? It's in helping you monetize it in the back channel, which is important. And I'll give you another example. Let's say you're driving down the road in your car, and your car notices that you're not keeping your lane as effective as you did an hour ago. And it thinks you might be tired because it's 2 in the morning. It also knows there's a 24-hour Starbucks, two exits up, and that you like chai lattes. So on the car radio comes the message, would you like a chai latte? You say yes. Beams your payment information head, puts a map on the screen to the drive-through, you go pick up your coffee and drive on the car, thus having saved its own life as well as yours, as I like to drive. I can tell you with great confidence that if your car is anything less than five years old, it can do what I just said. Two things fall from that. Why doesn't my car order me coffee? <laughs> and the answer is, you don't want it to. Who else do you not want to know that you're weaving in your lane at 2 in the morning? And even if you get over that, who, who else wants that data? Well, Dunkin' Donuts wants that data. Hilton has a hotel room they didn't sell the night before. What's the first thing you do when you find an app that's tracking you on your cell phone? You shut off the tracking. Because, again, we're stealing the data from you, and we're not giving you bad value back for it. But there's something even more important about that. How did it know you needed coffee? There are all of these data points customer behavior patterns, preferences, payment information, time of day, weather, but each of these things are not that interesting in and of themselves. But if you put them together and correlated them, you could confer you need coffee. In fact, what you could do is you get a huge amount of data in advance and create very sophisticated machine learning models that would be validated with only the smallest amount of live data. Like you're driving down the road in the, in the car at 3 a.m., 80% chance you need coffee. You wiggle in your lane ever so slightly, 100% chance, right? So only two live data points could confirm a machine learning model that may have been made up of millions of data points to be able to offer you coffee. We're not in that world yet, but we will be in that world where those data points become valuable outside of the context from which they were collected. And when you can bring them together and put them together in machine learning models and offer up nuggets of insight like you need coffee, that becomes a very valuable thing for companies like Dunkin' Donuts. And so what we have to do is do as much work as we can now to help as many companies get at those data streams so that we can be in a position to help them monetize and correlate that data. And of course the laws on how companies can share data and all that have yet to be written. Yeah, and, and where they are are ham-handed. You know, you have things like HIPAA regulations where the night before my daughter's 18th birthday, I knew absolutely everything about her health record, and the morning of, miraculously, I knew nothing. Well, it, it's not an all or nothing. Like, if, if I was going to see the doctor because my knee hurt, I might want the doctor to know certain pieces of my medical history, but if I got hit by a car out on the street and the ambulance was coming to pick me up, I want them to know everything. And so there's got to be fine-grained control over my own data stream. And I don't have time today, but you know this blockchain thing that, that people have heard about, the reason for its excitement level in the IoT space is because it might actually be far more useful in the IoT context to tag and flag data streams as they escape your hands than it was in Bitcoin as a tool for doing that, maybe. But we need to crack that code of allowing you to be able to know why your data is being used and to be able to route value back to you as the creator of it.
So what do your critics say about what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. Internally, critics say that, you know, we're not investing enough resources enough quickly enough in the right places to be able to deliver on the the products that we're proposing. In other words, there's more demand out there than there are people and resources in our company right now to supply it. Critics on the local level are, I think, in some degrees afraid of what's happening in the world around us and are afraid that they're going to be victimized by that in their job. And then they see a company that is actually trying to help that along. And they're not necessarily going to have a positive view of that. It's like aiding and abetting a great crime, right, in, in their minds. I think investors in our company have historically been critical of the amount of work that I and I think by translation other technology leaders do to try and change things like capital and education because they don't see the immediate benefits, the value of the company. And they wish we'd just spend less time on that and spend more time on making them richer, I suppose. So, yeah, they're all around. But criticism is always around. So how do you answer that kind of in a, in a broad paintbrush, though? Well, um, starting with the first one internally, it's working to make sure that we make smart decisions about the resources that we do have and how we deploy them for maximum benefit. For the local community, it's about being active and having a positive persona in the local community with the charitable work we do and other sorts of ways we get involved in the community so it dulls the edges of this being somehow an enemy in our midst. And you know, from an investor perspective about the time that you're spending on it, there's an additional benefit to that, 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 that higher profile that you have when you do all that work in public also gives confidence to potential customers that that's a good company, well run, and they know what they're talking about. So with the time comes the visibility, which ultimately helps you know our company find new customers probably. So what challenges have you had to overcome at this point? Whew, uh, well, starting with myself, I never went to school to do any of this. I went to Purdue's College of Technology, is what it was called at the time, now it's called the Purdue Polytechnic. So I guess you could say, I got the best training there is to be a technologist. But as I said earlier, you didn't need a college degree to be a technologist. And so as a result, you know, I don't have a degree in building a startup company or accounting or <laughs> HR, right? <laughs> or, but that's okay because, as I tell people, I really only have three jobs at this company. Job one is raising money. Job two is hiring people that are better than me at everything. And job three is keeping them. And if I can get into that zone three where all I'm doing is keeping them, it's like nirvana because everybody around here is better at it than I am and then I don't have to do anything. <laughs> right, right? So I work really hard to get good people and keep them so that they can enable them to do their work and do it well. Where I have failures is just when I fail to do that. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the worst case scenario. What would happen if ClearObject failed? Well, um, <laughs> it depends on your perspective. Some people would have a party. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, I would say uh, you'd have one less agency on the local level helping companies do this. And ultimately, that probably doesn't matter because the need is so great and the realization is so vast and so rapid. There'll be others that would take up that task and do it. And I 
would feel bad for our investors and our company because likely whatever did us in was something that could have been avoided probably by me. So I that would be at fault. But the employees of our company, for great majority, if not all of them, would you know be able to use the experiences and the resume that they have here to find a great job at another company. So. I don't know if there, a, a doubt catastrophe would, <laughs> would ensue. <laughs> It'd be a little tough for a while, but the earth would not stop rotating. When you experience doubts, where does it typically strike and how do you deal with it? Middle of the night, uh, <laughs> about somewhere between 1.30 and 3 a.m. Uh, every day. <laughs> when? Uh, so doctor, when does it does this start happening? Every day. A prayer is my absolute go-to, and I'm not shy about that. You know, usually I figured out maybe a little bit too late that when I think I know what to do, it's I'm usually wrong, <laughs> right? Right, and I, that usually is uh, the the first sign of a failure is saying I got this, right? And so um, realizing that I really don't got it first and foremost is important, and then asking. Usually what should happen then presents itself pretty quickly. So let me ask you a question a little bit differently then. What do you do to regain your perspective and get grounded and really find your hope when you're faced with some of this adversity? Because a lot of what you're doing has never been done before. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, make two points on that. I tell people at our company all the time, you cannot go to Amazon and buy a book labeled How to Build an IoT Startup. It doesn't exist. So there is there was no book for how you ran software development tools in the cloud. There was no book about how you design a tech office building in Fishers, Indiana. There's None of this stuff has a book. Um, so first and foremost, you got to be comfortable with that. <laughs> Every day is, well, we got to just figure it out. Uh, and if you don't have... Um, a healthy um, appreciation for that, then you're not going to survive very long at this company because that's a day-to-day -day reality. But that's an incomplete answer because sometimes you can't figure it out. I find that the best way to regain hope in all this is just blunt force, truth, and honesty and integrity. We have five values at our company, but I'll be honest, my favorite one is integrity, which I define as doing what you say and saying what you do. As in, if you say that you've got it, then we got to trust that you've got it because we don't have time in a fast-moving company to go back and keep checking. You know, do what you say. And that's hard for people. But the flip side of it is harder, saying what you do, which means sometimes you don't got it. And sometimes you screwed it up. Sometimes you don't understand. And if you don't tell people, I don't get this, I don't understand, nobody can help you. And so that's harder because it first and foremost requires humility. Right, which is really, really hard for people generally. And then when you add them into an IoT company and a tech company and everybody's proud of them for working at Clarity, blah, 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 it's real hard to admit that I don't freaking know what I'm doing. I can tell you, though, with great confidence that anytime anyone has ever left here against their will, it's been an integrity problem. Usually in their own failure to acknowledge that they don't know what they're doing and ask for help, almost always, invariably. To finally answer your question, I go back to the basic fundamentals, realizing that I don't know what I'm doing. My fundamental job here is to enable others to fly and to retain them. It's to hold them to a high integrity standard of doing what they say and saying what they do, which first and foremost begins with me. 
And if I kind of go back to those pillars, I can usually construct a new reality on top of them <laughs> that I could live with it, right? And, and get my, my footing again. Because if it's going wrong, it's usually a failure of integrity. It's usually a failure of, of focusing first on people and their development. And usually a failure of, or and or a failure of us to deliver on a commitment to a customer, which in its heart is an integrity issue. So how would you define success? I have a weird definition for success. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure if you've asked that question before, people answer it all different ways, right? Some people define it by being rich. Some people define it by being happy. I define success as being able to leave something and it continue without me. When do you successfully complete college? When you leave. You, you threw a ceremony called commencement, as in to commence. Commence what? The rest of your life. How do you know you won a game? When you leave the field. In all things in life, success is marked only when it works without you. Even raising children. How do you know you were a successful parent? Well, when you have a kid that can do everything right on their own and doesn't need you to survive. That's a successful parent. So in reality, my definition of success is the ability to leave something behind and it'd be great, if not even better, that I'm not there. I don't think that's where we're at right now with Clear Object, right? <laughs> so I would not call Clear Object a success. Uh, I think it will be when I can put my stuff in a box and walk out of here, and then it'll be a success. What causes you the most frustration with what you're trying to achieve? People who lack integrity in the form of first not being honest with themselves and then being honest with everyone around them about what they need to succeed and to grow. And then we find out about it too late after we're able to act on it. It's like leaving a restaurant and telling the waiter, this is great, everything's fine, yeah, yeah, and then running home and putting a bad review up on Yelp. If I was that restaurant owner, I'd be really, really frustrated with that patron, right? Because how come you didn't tell me, well, I could make it right for you? So that's a real frustration for me when I don't, when I don't get truth. Because I hold myself to a high standard, which I admittedly fail to achieve all the time, daily, sometimes hourly. But, you know, I want people to be honest and truthful. And when they're not, first and foremost with themselves, that's probably one of my biggest frustrations. So you've stuck with us this far in our conversation about the Internet of Things, and you might be wondering, yeah, that's all great and futuristic sounding, but what does it really matter to me? John McDonald explains. Why is IoT relevant to me? In reality, the people that come listen to me talk or who might listen to this podcast or might want to be employees of our company or might be just members of the community, it's, it's really all the same question that they're asking. Explain why this matters to me. I've heard about it, but I don't really understand it. And Why is it relevant to me? If I could just beam that into the head of everybody, first of all, I would, could stop traveling so much. But secondly, I think what it would enable them to do within their own particular roles and jobs in life, be they in education or politics or private industry, be able to then start to grapple with the reality that the data is the great creator and destroyer of all business value going forward. And your relationship to that fact governs your next move. That's not an assertion. That's a fact. 
I would prefer that everyone just knew that and accepted that and got to work on the ramifications of that right away rather than wondering if it's going to apply to them or not because it does. It's a universal law. Imagine telling yourself in 2008 that you'd post your newborn baby's pictures live on the internet for everyone to see, that you would rarely, if ever, set foot in a bank branch, that you would never buy another music album, that you would willingly get into a stranger's car and have them drive you somewhere and then get out without reaching for your wallet. But yet all of those companies, Instagram, Uber, Facebook, Airbnb, these companies are not up-and-comers. They're the market leaders in their industries. And they didn't even exist 10 years ago, and they did so without having to cover off on any of the capital assets of any of their predecessors. Whoa. What if it's not cars or hotels or whatever that, what do they own? And the answer is data. But perhaps more significantly, what they represent are platforms that enable individuals to offer up their own capital assets and talents to others in a global marketplace. In Uber, who's the driver? You're the driver. Whose car is it? It's your car. Whose home is it in, in, in Airbnb? It's your house. Right? Even Netflix. Who, who, where, where does the content come from? Independent movie and TV producers that post it up on a marketplace that you subscribe to in the hopes that you'll download it, and if it becomes popular, Netflix will buy more. All of them represent a marketplace for companies and individuals to offer up skills, their own skills, in a global marketplace. Now, if you extend that metaphor a little bit, ask yourself, well, what else could be offered up in a global marketplace on demand with a credit card? And the answer is everything. Legal services, creative services, advertising, any, everything. If you munch all these concepts together, vast amounts of data coming from everyday devices, cloud infrastructures that you can get in a, with a credit card, machine learning, individual people plotting their own educational course and getting on-demand education in the moment when they need it on YouTube or from education institutions or whatever will service them. Being able to assemble then a company with data services and machine learning, subscribe to data streams, get the creative, it even refines and defines what a company even is. Because you could assemble all those components to exploit a particular data model or advantage for a year, for a, a month, for an hour. And what it does is it turns everybody into their own entrepreneur and, and everybody into their own seller, right, of the skills and time that they have and capital assets that they have to others. That's really what's going on. Internet of Things, machine learning, cloud infrastructure enablers. Right? But what's fundamentally happening is a deconstruction of what is an employee, what is a business, what is a paycheck, where's the value creation. That's what's really going on. The implications of that are obviously yet to be understood. I want to talk about you personally for just a few minutes. Because in my mind and why I was so excited to talk to you specifically, aside from amazing company that Clear Object is. You are the model for what the future for Indiana really is. You're a local homegrown tech mogul here in Indianapolis and that's amazing. So tell us the story. Well uh, I was uh, adopted by my parents. I know that I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio 
but I only was there for a day and a half. My folks lived in uh, Columbus, Indiana. Dad worked for Arvin, my mom worked for Cummins. Shortly thereafter, he got a job working for an insurance company, and we moved to Fort Wayne, which is where I went to elementary school. We, for a short time, lived outside of Detroit, Michigan, which is where I started high school, but I finished it here at Lawrence North in Indianapolis. Went to Purdue. It was the only school that did not accept me immediately when I applied. I took that as a challenge. Started off in the business school there, but they didn't have enough computers. Like their definition of computers was Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, and I wanted more. So I uh, changed degree objectives, as I like to say, to computer science. That had too much computers. And so for a short period of time, I contemplated being a meteorologist because I was thinking of something I could stay in that school and, and get. And then I found the College of Technology, which is where I sort of started. And that's where I got my degree. As I like to joke, I use all those skills at cloud computing company, business, computer science, technology, and even meteorology, clouds. <laughs> but then, like many of my fellow graduates, got a job for a big tech company right out of school, IBM, which really was just on an airplane. Never really had a need to build a business network here because I didn't really do any business here. And I was fortunate to get into IBM at the time that they were starting to build their software business as a distinct business, and so I kind of grew up in that business as it went. And then got that call from that colleague in Chicago saying, can McDonald's move their software into a cloud? And well, you heard the rest of that story earlier. Actually, most of the time I lived in Fishers. My parents lived in a house when I was in high school that's now part of Fishers, which wasn't at the time. So it just never really seemed like there was a better place to be. <laughs> so. Uh, even when I was commuting weekly to New York City, I just had no desire to move to New York City. I kind of liked the idea that I could get on an airplane and escape it and come back to Indiana. I thought that was a, like a, a good thing. So yeah, you know, I don't, I can't say that there's anything about that story that's remarkable in any other way other than it's just, you know, I never really found a different place or uh, interest in moving anywhere else. But it was remarkable from a standpoint that you were able to use a lot of our really terrific resources with Purdue and things like that, and then turn it into something brand new uh, and still feel that you could be rooted here in home yeah. and not have to be traveling right. everywhere else. Uh, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation uh, s set up this thing called Elevate Ventures a few years ago that was it's a way for the stay to, to plow money into tech startups to help them grow, and we were one of the first investments that they made, you know, to the Indiana Chamber of Commerce has been tirelessly supportive of the business community, so I think it's one of the main reasons why we have such a great business community, and because of the efforts of them. Now I'm happy to be parts of these organizations and help, you know, guide and steer them. But yeah, it was a benefit of the public education system in Indiana, the private school system in Indiana, the higher education system in Indiana, the economic development system in Indiana. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, it works. <laughs> What's encouraging, I think, and I, and I hope our listeners taking away from it is it's possible to not have to buy into this economic nomad theory. You can put roots down, you can have families, yeah. you can have a life and be in community yeah. and make it different. You do not have to go to California or New York. You do not have to load yourself and your kids up with debt. You do not have to think that you have to go to a big city and live in a downtown apartment to have a cool job. You do not have to think that the future is happening in other places and not here. 
you do not have to do anything other than look around you and know that it's a great place to be, live, work, build a company, you know, build a life. And if hopefully someday they'll carry me out on a stretcher. <laughs> so what's one piece of practical advice that you'd give someone who's just starting out? Well, you already know what your elders don't, which is that the world is the digital economy and that you are a player in it already. And it's going to be all about you and not what these other people tell you you need to do or tell you what you need to learn. You already know that you can build a website, you can code an app, you can read, you can study, you can take in information, you can ponder big questions, think about data. You already have all the skills that are required. What you need to do is give yourself permission to use them, first and foremost. There's this guy, Nolan Bushnell, that I talk about sometimes. Nolan was the creator of Atari, so you call him a father of the video game industry. He sold that and plowed all his money into Chuck E. Cheese. He then sold that and plowed all his money into a venture capital firm that funded a startup that made the, the data behind Google Maps. So this guy kind of knows. He's responsible for Google Maps and the video game industry and, uh, you know, bad pizza with animatronics. But he said that uh, the difference between an entrepreneur and everybody else is the courage to do something about your idea right now, not tomorrow, right now, right? An entrepreneur is a doer and not a dreamer. I think that's profound because if it's all about you as an individual human and plowing your way in this world and learning on demand and offering up your skills, that makes you all an entrepreneurs. You have to be to succeed in that. And the only difference between people that are entrepreneurs and are not, it's not the color of your skin, it's not how much money you made, it's not your college degree or how much education you have or your gender. It's none of the above. It's the courage to risk all of it or at least most of it on an idea right now. That's it. That's the only thing that differentiates you. So first and foremost, you have to give yourself permission to just do it. And that would be my advice to everybody. If someone stayed with us this long through our conversation. <laughs> they deserve a medal. <laughs> what challenge would you make to them if they see an opportunity or a problem or they feel like they've got some value that's not being fully deployed? Take matters into your own hands. Just do it. If you think you have a lack of skill in a certain area, there's a number of ways to solve that problem, both free and per pay, online and, and virtual. If you think that something's not right about your community and it should be better, say something about it or do something about it. Again, do it, don't dream it. Take action on it. Even if it doesn't work, you'll be able to sleep at night knowing at least I tried. Right? Don't be passive and inactive. Do it. What's the most important point for someone to take away from our conversation today? Data is the great creator and destroyer of all business value going forward. It will ultimately be harnessed not by big corporations or governments, but by humans pondering questions and using computers to assist them in answering those things. And it's increasingly going to be done by you as an individual. And so you first and foremost guess, give yourself permission to give that a try. And no one's going to hand you those answers. You've got to not dream it, but you got to do it. Are you ready to accept John's challenge and not just dream about doing your part to make a positive difference for a future, but actually do it? Indiana's future depends on people like you becoming makers and growers of things of value. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you don't have to be able to see the whole staircase to take the first step. What's your first step to our better and brighter digital future here in the heartland? I hope you'll take it, just like John McDonald did eight years ago. 
Special thanks to our guest, John McDonald of Clear Object. He's definitely a hopeful Hoosier. You can learn more about the amazing work they're doing to help businesses succeed at the Internet of Things at clearobject.com. They have a terrific blog with lots of intriguing articles. If you know someone who's doing something extraordinary to make a better and brighter future for us here in Indiana, please send me your suggestions for future guests at andy at adgrowthadvisors.com. We greatly appreciate your positive comments and ratings wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us to spread our hopeful message to other people around the state. Please follow us on Facebook so you know when new episodes become available. Our theme music was composed and performed by Indianapolis author, speaker, musician, and licensed therapist, my good friend George Middleton. I'm your hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.